Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Church here in Rocky Top, Tennessee. We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 as we continue to look at a church reborn, and specifically a man named Philip, Philip on the move. This past Tuesday was June 6th, and the United States and other countries throughout the world remembered a very special day in modern history. And when you look at the 20th century, there were 36,525 days, and of these, arguably none were more consequential than June 6, 1944. We call it D-Day. It was the Allied invasion of Normandy and Nazi-occupied France. And while it didn't end World War II, many believe that the Nazi war machine could not have been defeated without this amazing, amazing day. And it was an unprecedented undertaking. First, there were tens of thousands of men and millions of tons of material and supplies that had to be moved 100 miles across the roughest bodies of water in the world, the English Channel, and it had to be kept secret. If the Germans discovered where and when the Allies were landing, they could mass forces against them and turn the beaches of northern France into horrendous killing fields. So to prevent this, the Allies took every possible precaution. The Air Forces destroyed bridges, roads, railways that might be used by the Germans to rush uh, reinforcements to the invasion site. And the reality was that everyone knew the attack was coming, but the key was to keep the Germans guessing. Fake radio chatter was broadcast to suggest the peaches near Kalawas would be the landing point. Double agents leaked fake details, and movie set designers built phony tanks, planes, and ships to support the ruse of an army preparing to cross near Dover to throw off German reconnaissance and spies. When high winds began pummeling the English Channel, Allied Supreme Leader and Commander General Dwight Eisenhower postponed the invasion date originally set for June 5th by 24 hours. Now that may not seem like a huge delay, but it was. All of the forces were concentrated and ready to go. All the plans, all the deceptions could be exposed at any moment. But then a new forecast came. The weather appeared to be breaking, and there might be a 12-hour window of opportunity to pull, off, pull this off. So Eisenhower gave the order. We go, and immediately the largest invasion fleet ever assembled set sail, and on board there were 130,000 young soldiers. It was a brutal fight, but by midday, with U.S. naval support, the Germans ended up being low on supplies and ammunition, and they began to fold. Nazi reinforcements, which might have made all the difference, were not ordered to Normandy until the afternoon, and before the Germans could mount an effective counterattack, the Allies had secured all five landing beaches. Churchill had expected 20,000 to be killed on D-Day, but fortunately, heavy though the losses were and heartbreaking as though they were, they were much lower. Of the 156,000 Allied personnel who hit the beaches that day, 10,000 became casualties, and of these, 5,000 were killed. But as I know we all would agree, no one died in vain. The last message that we focused on had a young man by the name of Stephen who passionately proclaimed Jesus to a hostile and resistant crowd. And this time, the result, the end result, didn't seem victorious. Stephen was killed. Stephen was stoned to death for his beliefs and became the first Christian martyr. But Stephen's death also was not in vain. Rather, than, rather, it set off a spreading of the Christian church throughout the Roman Empire rather than snuffling and snuffing out the Christian movement. And it deeply affected the life 
of who would become the most influential Christian missionary of all time, who we know as the Apostle Paul. So Acts 8 picks up the story that Luke is giving as the spread of the early church. Now, Philip will be the main character in today's message, but he's not going to be the only one that we'll examine. Luke 8 begins, or excuse me, Acts 8 begins by Luke telling us of Saul's plan to ravage the church. He wants to drag off Christians to prison, and he wants to snuff out the spread of Christianity. We're then more formally introduced to Philip. We learn about a magician named Simon who has a questionable conversion, and then we pick right back up with Philip and a consequential meeting he had with an Ethiopian man near the end of the chapter. And again, our main focus will be on Philip. So this is Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. We're going to read this little section, talk about it, and then we're going to go and finish the rest of it. Again, verse 4 in Acts 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, unclean spirits cried out with a loud voice and came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, it's important to distinguish that there are several Philips actually mentioned in Scripture. And this particular Philip is to be distinguished from one of the twelve disciples. One of the original twelve disciples was named Philip. And the Philip that we're reading about today was one of the seven deacons that were chosen to help serve tables and take care of widows. You might remember that from Acts 6 when the early church selects seven men of good character, of good repute, to be able to serve widows and to serve tables, to be servants of the early church. And we commonly identify these folks as deacons. Now, clearly, an important job was service in supporting the ministry of the apostles, but these deacons also proved to be very capable soul winners and proclaimers of the truth. And in fact, by the time that we get to Acts 21, Luke will be referring to Philip as Philip the Evangelist. But because of Stephen's death and the persecution that followed, Philip heads down to the city of Samaria. You know, we can't penetrate with the gospel of Jesus Christ without some blowback from the world because Jesus Christ commands and requires the death of our old self, our old sinful, carnful self, full of pride, greed, lust, and selfish ambition. And that does not want to go quietly into the night. It doesn't want to die. So we mustn't be surprised when we experience blowback, when we experience pushback, when we experience persecution when we live a Christian life and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly we should share with a humble heart, with love, with grace, with compassion. But even when we're doing all that Christ would have us to do, we will still experience resistance. In fact, if the world accepts us just as we are, if we enjoy and we love the things of the world and find living in this world to be a comfortable existence, I dare say, beware Something is terribly, terribly wrong with your walk or my walk with the Lord. Paul told his young friend Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Philip, again, as a result of this hot persecution of the Christian church, finds himself in Samaria. Now, Samaria was an interesting place, and the history between the Jews and the Samaritans was one that was fraught with strife. And if you're familiar with some of the New Testament, the word Samaritan or the place name of Samaria may ring a bell to you. 
We've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. You might even recall that Jesus went to Samaria. This happens early in John's Gospel in John 4. In fact, John records that Jesus had to or needed to go through Samaria. Now, it's interesting because some commentators of the Bible actually think that John is making a little bit of a subtle joke here when he said that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Because geographically speaking, one didn't technically have to go through Samaria to get to places, but rather Jesus decided to go there to minister to its people. Samaria was sort of off the beaten path. It was up in the hills. It was a challenge to get to. And the Jews had alternate routes in which they wanted to go when they moved from north to south. Nobody went through Samaria. Not solely because it was isolated, because there was, but because there was this deep, long-standing animosity, particularly between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, I'll try not to get too lost in the weeds, but way back in history, back in the 10th century B.C., there was a split in the Israelite monarchy. We can read about this in the Old Testament. There was a civil war, and of course this wasn't a good thing, but it was recorded history. There was a split in the monarchy so that of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 tribes went north with the capital at Samaria, and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed down south with the capital of Jerusalem. So the kingdom was split north and south, Israel and Judah, kind of a Hatfields and McCoy sort of thing, or a Capulets and Montagues where they did not get along with each other at all. And as time went on, the empire in the northeast, there was one that arose, there was an empire that arose called the Assyrians, Assyria, and they took over the world. The Assyrians swept down into the area where the ten tribes were, and they took the ten northern tribes captive, and they took them with them to Assyria. So now, what happens as a result of this? Well, as time goes on, you need to find sons and daughters for marriage partners. And so they're going to marry who is available. So they begin to intermarry with these people groups from these different regions, and they developed a group known as the Samaritans. And in 303 BC, much longer after that, the Samaritans still split very much so from their Jewish kindred. They build their own temple, very similar to the one in Jerusalem, on Mount Gerizim, and they have sacrifices on Mount Gerizim, and they even begin to say that this is where Abraham brought his son Isaac, not down south, not on Mount Zion. And so they kind of retell the story, and as a result of that, this rivalry developed. So there was this long-standing animus between authentic or purebred Jews and half-breed Samaritans. And if you're familiar with the story from John 4, Jesus speaks to a woman at the well who's a Samaritan, and she immediately begins to deflect and to get Jesus all riled up about talking about the true temple and where people ought to really worship. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. He lovingly keeps pressing, and he gets very personal into her life. And by the end of it, this disenfranchised woman starts telling others about Jesus, and many Samaritans believe in Christ. And Philip now, many years later, finds himself in Samaria, and he's building on the work that Jesus had started, and he preaches to the Samaritans despite all of these cultural differences, all of these nasty feelings that have prevailed for so long, and he ministers to them very successfully. He preaches the gospel, and a revival breaks out in Samaria. But then something interesting happens. Right in the midst of this revival, God calls Philip away. Now, the Bible gives us no insight into what Philip thought. Based on Philip's actions in the text, all we see is his continued faithful obedience to the Spirit of God. However, from my perspective, 
and I'm not saying Philip thought this, but from my perspective, it would be easy to think, wait a second, there is a great revival happening here. These folks, the Samaritans, are experiencing a great awakening, and for the first time in centuries, they are believing God's full revelation. Peter and John come down to support the church, and then Philip is whisked away. Now, it seemed odd, but seeing as how you and I have a little altitude in this story, we can see God's plan from this elevated viewpoint, and we're able to see what happens next. So, this is down in Acts 8:26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go forward, go, and rather go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And the Ethiopian said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, So, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I know that was lengthy, but after spearheading this great revival in Samaria, God now tells Philip to go to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, a desert place. So Luke is sort of driving home this point of going where God leads despite our inclinations to the contrary, and here Philip finds himself in a desert place. Now, there may be a dual meaning here. All places without Christ are really a desert place in which we can bring this living water, and it would be just like Luke under God's inspiration to insert that image here. But regardless, not long after arriving, we begin to see why God called Philip out of Samaria. He encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this Ethiopian man had traveled to Jerusalem for worship. And apparently this was a person who had converted to the Jewish religion. It was kind of an odd situation. And he had a personal pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. He was a high official in the court of Candace. Now, Candace back then was, at least with this group of people, was a title. It, was, uh, it meant queen. It was a queen. It wasn't an actual name. And his position explains why he would be in a chariot as well as how he would have a copy of a scroll of Isaiah. And so his religion seemed to be well-placed and well-intentioned, but he was still unfulfilled. You know, we often say that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, and I believe that this is true, but I also don't like some of the unsaid comments and assumptions behind some folks that make that comment. And maybe this is anecdotal, but here's what I see often, that many people who 
have made those remarks to me. You know, it's all about, it's a relationship. It's not a religion. It's a relationship, not a religion. They do so while often dismissing many of the wonderful beliefs that have been firmly established in the New Testament and practiced in the early church. So, for instance, you see this oftentimes, people will make this comment when they're invited to be a part of a church. They getting together and worshiping with one another. They're resistant to do that sometimes, but it's a very biblical thing to do. First of all, it's God's will that we do this. The author of Hebrews said that we should not neglect to meet together, but encourage one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. And secondly, it's a model that we have from the New Testament of the church. That verse that I keep driving home for us, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. There was something amazing and beautiful and wonderful about coming together as the body of Christ. But on occasion, the relationship, not religion folks, they say they don't really need to come to church because of their relationship. They don't need to read the Bible because of their relationship. They don't need disciplined lives to live pure before God. They don't need fellowship. They don't need this. They don't need that. But they miss the point, and they miss it big time. The whole reason that we should come together with a group of believers is because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But may I also say that viewing our faith strictly as a religion, absent of a personal relationship with Christ, is not biblical as well. Following only religion, only strict protocols, only rules, traditions, and rituals will leave us empty. You know, sincerely religious people may search all their lives looking for that deep fulfillment, something that satisfies the deepest longings of their heart, but they will never find it fully and eternally apart from Jesus. It's hard to know exactly where this Ethiopian man fell on the spectrum here, but it seems apparent that he lacked understanding. So enter Philip. Philip joins this man as he's reading the scroll. Now, this was a big deal. I've kind of already touched on it, but not everyone had access to scrolls willy-nilly. But this was a person in a highly affluent position, and so it just so happens that he has one, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, talk about convenient here. At least he wasn't reading some crazy witchcraft book or doing a crossword or Sudoku puzzle. He was reading the Word of God. It was a God-ordained moment, and even more so when we learn what he was reading from Isaiah. He was reading from what we refer to as Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and this particular text, Isaiah 53, is one of the most explicit texts that prophesied and foretold what Jesus would endure and go through on the cross of Calvary. In fact, some people solemnly refer to it as the suffering servant text. So Philip asked the Ethiopian if he understood what he was reading, and the Ethiopian said, How can I unless someone explains it to me? He answers the question with a question. But then Philip opens his mouth and, starting with that scripture, teaches him about Jesus. And as a result of Philip's faithfulness and his obedience to God every step of the way, this Ethiopian gave his life to Christ, and he was immediately baptized. Now Luke, who is always brilliant, is doing something amazing here. You know, I try to encourage people to read the biblical text, not just as standalone verses or as quick snippets, but read it as a masterfully interwoven literary story whose producer, author, and director is God. So now pay attention to this because this is really cool. Acts chronicles the growth and spread of the early church. It's a missionary book, 
and it chronicles how the message of salvation, the redeeming work of God, was not limited to the Jewish people, but Jesus had come for the entire world. Now, remember that the original biblical text didn't have chapters and verses. We've added those to help navigate this glorious large volume. And so Luke has three stories here back to back, Acts 8, 9, and 10. And so here where we're at today in Acts 8, you have a man from Ethiopia who is saved. In Acts 9, Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul, is saved. And then in Acts 10, a man from Caesarea named Cornelius is saved. Now, this may seem complex, but it's not. So after the great flood, Noah's descendants are told to go and repopulate the earth. And the sons of Noah were Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now, Ham's descendants would go on to eventually produce the Ethiopians. Not modern-day Ethiopia, but largely people who are of the black ethnic group. Now, Shem's descendants would go on to produce Middle Easterners, including Jews. And Japheth would go on to eventually produce the Italians. Now, these three consecutive stories, all of these people are represented. Shem's, or excuse me, Ham's people with the Ethiopians, Shem's people with the Jews, and Japheth's people with this man Cornelius that was originally from Italy. So we have a person from each group coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And when I learned this, my mind was blown, and I just stood in awe of God's brilliance and inspiring Luke to write the story this way. It's a literary masterpiece, but more than that, it's a story of eternal significance. And so to conclude this story, right after the conversion and baptism, Philip is swept off again by the Spirit of God to continue evangelizing and sharing the gospel, and God continues his definite plan to build the church. So what are some timeless takeaways here? I always like to take these stories and see what applications or principles that God gives for the church today. And the first one is this, being faithful in the little things. You know, Philip was first selected to serve tables. An important job to be sure, but certainly not one that demanded the attention of the masses or put him front and center as a large figure in the church. But Philip did it. He served tables. Philip did the small things. And there's an important principle here. If we're faithful in little, God will bless us much. Jesus said this in Luke 16.10, If you're faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. In the book of Zechariah, the temple is being rebuilt with the help of a governor of sorts named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, I'm sorry. I can't say his name without smiling a little bit. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, there I go, there I've got it. But as the foundations and some of these first materials are being laid, there are people who see it and they remember the previous temple and how big and how large and how glorious it was and how full of people it was. And they begin to despair. They scoff at the smallness of what they're seeing. But then God says this, Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. And Philip serves as a model for this truth, for this principle. And we need to look at men like Philip who will say, Sure, I'll serve tables. I'm not too good for that. I want to serve because I love God. It may be serving tables for those who need food or providing a box of groceries for someone when a loved one has passed. It may be crafting for a cause where many of our women are already doing great things out of their love for Jesus. But you know, let me throw this out there. We need a Sunday school teacher for children, a man or a woman or a couple 
who will prepare to teach the Bible to children on Sunday mornings. It's a small thing, but of eternal significance. We need someone to do that. It may be a person who is a faithful prayer person, not just a God is good, God is great, and we thank him for this food sort of person, but a person who gets on their knees before God and deeply prays with the burden for this church and for this community. And I could go on, but I hope every person has a burden to serve God in whatever tasks he gives you. I'm using that word very intentionally, burden. You know, my heart hurts for this community because I love them. My heart, my heart's desire as a pastor is to help you be shepherded and disciple people into a greater understanding and relationship with Jesus. And if you're not burdened, I say this out of love, I hope you become burdened because God uses a heart like that. Psalm 51, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Now listen to this because this is so important. A contrite heart or spirit is when a person's inner man or will has been broken so that they no longer run after the things they want, but they surrender to the things that God wants. A broken heart or will says, I will no longer do this my way or on my terms, but I will surrender to your ways. And this type of heart that is fully surrendered to God, God will never turn away. God had first called Philip to serve tables, and he did. He was faithful in the small things. Then God said, Now I'm calling you to Samaria to share the gospel. Then God said, Lead this one man to Jesus. And then by the close of the book of Acts, Philip is a powerhouse evangelist, and that same spirit who had led Philip to serve the body of Christ by serving tables led him to continually growing opportunities, and Philip faithfully served. Secondly, and this one may sound odd at first, is the power of interest in others. Now, did you notice how Philip engaged the Ethiopian? He asked a question. Do you understand what you are reading? You know, I interact with people all day, every day across the spectrum. And I've done this for about two decades now. And one of the biggest problems, challenges, refinements that I would say that folks need is this. Most people have no interest in anyone but themselves. But showing a genuine love for others is something that is deeply close to the heart of Jesus. Encouraging others to uplift them and guide them is something that is deeply close to the heart of Jesus. Pouring ourselves out for the benefit of others so that they may come to know Christ is something deeply close to the heart of Jesus. But it's also something that pushes against all of our fleshly inclinations and desires. Philip gave himself over to this person. He showed an interest in his life. And in faithfulness, Philip followed God and engaged with the Ethiopian on a relational level. He loved him and he cared about him. And you will be amazed of how people appreciate the genuine care of others when someone shows a sincere interest in their life and it opens the doors for gospel conversations. And we see the importance also of questions in the life of a seeker. This Ethiopian man had questions, legitimate ones in his search for truth. So may we pray for opportunities to build relationships with others so they can answer their questions and share Jesus with them and be willing to push back against that natural desire to be self-serving so that we can invest in the life of others. Finally, the power of the word. You know, it's a subtle thing, but in this story, Luke records this. Philip opened his mouth. 
At some point in our walk with God, it isn't just our actions. It isn't just our lifestyle. It isn't just coming to church. It isn't just reading our Bibles or saying our prayers. Now, all of these things are good and they're necessary for growth and spiritual maturity. But at some point, we must open our mouths to tell the great things God has done. God will use these opportunities when we are willing to serve him. You know, Philip didn't give the guy a firm handshake or a chummy pat on the back. He opened his mouth and shared truth. Let me read the entire verse. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There is nothing more powerful on the path to redemption than opening the scripture to a person. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The Spirit of God works supernaturally to bring people to Christ, and we should consider it a privilege that he invites us to join him in this work. I'll close with this. Although we look back at D-Day as a triumph for the good guys, and it most certainly was, there was no guarantee of success and victory that day, and a victory also was not immediately won. But the forces pushed ahead despite overwhelming odds, and eventually victory would be won six years and a day after Germany invaded Poland. The brave soldiers pushed on moment by moment, day by day, and they were united in the goal of victory. You know, I love that the story that emerges from Acts is that Christ is before us building his church, and he uses you and I, warts and all, to join him in the work of salvation day by day with the certainty of eternal victory. Can we see great things in a small church like First Baptist Rocky Top? There's not a doubt in my mind. So let's be faithful in the little things. Be faithful, love God, love others, and serve tables together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue our study through the book of Acts, we see your hand in all of history as Jesus builds the church. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray to be filled daily with that Spirit. Help us to be faithful in the little things. Help us to love each other and to love our community. Search our hearts, break down our pride in our lives and our other fleshly strongholds so that we can serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for the people of First Baptist Rocky Top, and please put in each of us a desire to serve your kingdom. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.